0: encore episode the real deal with pbm contracts and drug rebates today i speak with scott haas
1: american healthcare entrepreneurs and executives you want to know talking relentlessly seeking value
0: I hope you enjoy this encore episode of one of the most popular shows in the last 12 months. One of my mentors often said, price is irrelevant. He said he would sell anything for any price as long as he could define the terms of the deal. During this conversation today with Scott Haas about PBMs, that quote was playing in my head like an earworm. I'm henceforth going to struggle with the term rebate to define dollars that the PBM gets back from pharma. Because according to my guest today, Scott Haas, it turns out rebates comprise only about 40 percent of those back end dollars that some PBMs manage to score from pharma manufacturers. I don't have any insight really into this, but Scott Haas certainly does. And this is the average that he has seen in his work and that we're going to dig into today. But in sum, wow, let me just repeat that a mere 40 cents on the dollar of the gross amount that PBMs take, in air quotes, rebates from pharma these days, winds up going back to plan sponsors, even plan sponsors who are getting, also in air quotes, 100% of the rebates. If you didn't understand what I just said, no worries, I'm going to explain it right now. If you did, and you know the why behind all of this also, you could probably skip ahead about five minutes. So here's the backstory on this whole rebate Fandango. Let's start with part one of what is a two-part transaction. So part one, the deal between pharma manufacturers and PBMs. In general a pharma manufacturer signs a deal with a PBM to give back whatever percentage of their gross sales revenue to the PBM at like the end of the year, say. It's along the same lines as like a cash back coupon for the PBM. Why would a pharma company be up for giving cash back like this? Well, to get on a PBM's formulary, Giving cash back is like the price of admission. PBMs have a lot of leverage, after all, at least the big ones. They control access to millions and millions of patient lives. So if pharma wants their drug to be accessible to those millions and millions of lives, they have to play the cash back game, otherwise known as the rebate game. They have to agree to give back to the PBM a certain amount of cash on the back end. So. PBM pays pharma's list price up front, that's the gross amount paid, based on the list price of the drug, and then after all the cash back gets toted up at the end of the year, there'll be a net price. List price or gross price minus the cash back equals net price. It's this net price that's the true kind of final price which the pharma company gets paid per script by said PBM at the end of the day. These days, most everybody pretty much knows that PBMs are getting these so-called rebates, this cash back from pharma companies that I just explained. And it's pretty common knowledge, the so-called gross-to-net bubble, the gross-to-net dollar amount, is pretty huge, meaning the rebate or cashback amount is pretty huge. And many have also noticed that the gross-to-net dollar amounts seem to be growing bigger and bigger every year. I mean, for one insulin manufacturer, consider this. Their list price, their gross price, is $350 per script. And their net price after cash back slash rebates was $52 this past year. Wait, what? After all the cash back to the PBM, the insulin manufacturer got paid 86% less than their list price. 350 bucks went down to 52 bucks per prescription. The PBM vacuumed up 86% of the dough for every script written for this particular brand of insulin. Okay, so say Pharma gives a hundred bucks back to the PBM based on the terms of their deal. Call that part one of this example transaction. Here's part two, the deal between PBMs and health plans or self-insured employers. Health plans and self-insured employers are customers of the PBM. They hire PBMs to manage the pharmacy benefits for their members or employees. So because everybody knows this whole rebate thing is going on as part of the contracts that the PBMs put in place with their customers, meaning the health plans or employers, the PBMs tell their customers that they're going to give 100 percent of the rebates back to the plan employer. So you'd think that if the pharma manufacturer paid $100 to the PBM, that the customers of the PBM, the plan sponsors, would get the $100 back then right? The PBM would pass on 100% of the savings, as it were, if they're saying that they're going to give 100% of the rebates. I mean, if this is actually true, that $100 in and $100 out, then the PBM is potentially performing a useful service, right? They're lowering drug costs for their customer, the plan sponsors for their members and employees. Except, turns out, not so much. Because what is a rebate? Really? A rebate can be anything the PBM defines as a rebate. And it turns out that on average, as I said before, according to those in the know, something like $60 of that $100 is not a rebate. It's an administration fee or a data fee or an education fee, a clinical program fee, some other name that is not rebate. As my guest today, Scott Haas says, the term rebate is meaningless because it can mean whatever the PBM wants it to mean. It's like inconceivable from The Princess Bride. I do not think that word rebate means what you think it means. Now, it is a tangled web we weave here. And for more on why I say that, listen to the episode with Chris Sloan entitled Why Are Plan Sponsors Addicted to Rebates? That's Encore episode 216. There's also a show with Promode John where we dig into specifically specialty drugs and rebating and so-called rebate walls. That's episode 353. But net net, all of this probably... Myopic focus on rebates means that you have to keep an eagle eye out for so-called exclusions in contracts if you are a plan sponsor. So what are exclusions? This is that whole thing where some cheap generic is excluded from a PBM formulary while some expensive brand for the same condition is on formulary. Why would a cheap generic be excluded from a PBM formulary? Simple. Cheap generics don't have rebates. PBMs lose a lot of money when some high-priced specialty drug, for example, goes generic. They might have made thousands of dollars per script on that high-priced brand by collecting its rebate. Think about that insulin example. The rebate is 86% of the cost of the drug. And everybody wonders why some cheap generic insulin or biosimilar or whatever isn't on formulary. It is not a mystery when you're dealing with for-profit enterprises built around a model of revenue maximization. So given all this, what's my guest today, Scott Haas? What is his bottom line advice in this whole thing? If you're a health plan or employer and you're trying to negotiate a PBM contract where your spend is predictable and your contracted price promises have any meaning whatsoever, his advice is, Scott Haas's advice is, you have to ensure that the contract defines the actual prices for the drugs in the contract with absolute Numbers, not percentages off or weird formulas or the empty promise of getting an AWP or a WAC, which means average wholesale price or wholesale acquisition cost or any of the other various acronyms for some drug pricing schema. All of these are basically shorthand for this price could change at any moment. There's a reason in the know people say AWP stands for ain't what's paid, (laughs) meaning ain't what's ultimately going to be paid by plan sponsors. What is necessary in PBM contracts is the final price. That number, some digits with a dollar sign in front of them and a per unit after them. No acronyms and no percentage signs. Whoever gets to define the terms ultimately controls the price. So get the price up front. As mentioned several times already, I am talking to Scott Haas today, who is a senior VP over at USI Insurance Services. He's speaking today from the perspective of a plan sponsor, meaning from the point of view of a health plan, including those health plans managed by and paid for a self-insured employer and their employees. For more information on PBMs and how drugs get adjudicated, listen to the show with AJ Loyacano. That's Encore episode 231, which was one of the most popular episodes over here at Relentless Health Value. Somebody on LinkedIn, a LinkedIn post the other day, commented on how much she appreciated AJ Luiacano's frank assessment of things and how she would love to go to a meeting with more people similarly telling it like it is. That's pretty much what we aim to do at every episode over here at Relentless Health Value, and AJ nails it on that objective for sure in this episode. One last thing, also on the show today, Scott Haas brings up GPOs that the big three PBMs have been spinning up to aggregate and maximize all of those rebates that we just talked about. I discussed this exact topic at some length in another incredibly popular episode with Mike Schneider. That is Encore episode 288. My name is Stacey Richter. This podcast is sponsored by Aventria Health Group. Scott Haas, welcome to Relentless Health Value.
1: Thank you. I appreciate the opportunity to connect.
0: So let's start here. What's the major flaw in the buyer-seller relationship between plan sponsors like self-insured employers and the PBMs, meaning pharmacy benefit managers, that they might contract with to manage the pharmacy benefits for their employees or members? If I was going to just roll this up totally top line, what's the issue here?
1: It's the uh, flaw in the integrity of the process. How can you give your data as a plan sponsor to a third party entity to go behind their firewall, make up a number and come back and know that it's credible? Unless your consultant is in a position to represent your interest in how the process works, you're never going to achieve a optimal outcome year over year or contract over contract.
0: So your point is that when you give a PBM all of your plan data and then they come back with a number, it's like a magic trick going on in a closed cabinet. So, you know, you've got some junior somebody maybe or other repricer over at the PBM and maybe they added up a column wrong. I mean, how would you know if all you're getting kind of is the end result with no insight into how that end result came to be there could also be all kinds of assumptions or projections made and again how would you know if all you're seeing is the final number and some of this might be mentioned maybe in the terms and conditions all that little mouse type spanning pages and pages is that what you're saying in a nutshell correct yeah So if we're talking about, let's try to solve for this now. We had spoken earlier and you'd given me really five things that are important for anybody who's trying to get a good price from a PBM, trying to get a fair price or at least a a transparent price from a PBM. There's five things that they need to really take into consideration. The first one you had mentioned was eliminating variable contract and pricing terms. And you had said, if you can't measure it, then you can't fix the game. So you
1: want to get into that? Yeah, and it goes right to the process of how do you procure and how do you create metrics that are fixed and are measurable. And the only way that we know you can do that is to change the process through which you procure. So, for example, one of the variables is many PBMs will use average wholesale price to define what they're going to charge plan sponsors and consumers for generics. And that's a variable. So we eliminate AWP. What we tell the the PBMs, you must give us a unit cost per pill that you're willing to fix and guarantee that will become a price schedule that goes in the client's contract. And so when they give us that unit cost per pill for all 2,850 or so generics, they have to give us a unit cost for each of them that they're willing to fix and guarantee. So we are locking down pricing. For example, what we will see a lot of times when we get a client's data and we analyze is it because they use average wholesale price? We will see unit cost pricing vary by point of service, by, you know, meaning that did they go to CVS, Walgreens, Rite Aid, or Joe's Country Pharmacy? We'll see different pricing, even though the schedule of the AWP discount says it's going to be X. It's all over the board. We have even seen examples of the same drug on the same day in the same pharmacy that has a different unit cost price because of the variability that average wholesale price for generics allows. And again, it doesn't matter if it's average wholesale price, if it's NADAC, if it's WAC, if it's average acquisition price, those are variables, and we see different degrees of variability on how those are manipulated in the generic component.
0: Effectively what you're doing here, which just makes sense, it sounds like something, you know, if I was buying any other kind of widget, I would be like, how much are you going to charge me per widget and per, then it's, per unit. E- it's mm-hmm. per unit and then it's easy for me to do the math. So effectively what you're saying is, okay, PBM, you tell me what the unit price is for generic A, B, C, D, E. And then at the end of the day, I can see what the utilization is. I can tote up the, <laughs> multiply it by the price that you told me. And here we have our final number and we both can do that math.
1: Yeah, it's simple math actually, and it's this really strange concept most of us learned in college. It's called line item fiscal accounting, but there's very few organizations that actually apply it in healthcare. So, if you conceptualize this, then what we're really discussing is is working in an environment where the plan sponsor, they maintain the insurance risk, but what we're effectively doing is putting the network risk on to the backs of the PBM.
0: When you say network risk, what you mean if something changes throughout the course of the year and the unit price fluctuates, that's on the PBM?
1: Even more so. So that's one piece of it, yes. But the other part of it is this example, I think, will help illustrate the point. We just did an evaluation of a pretty large pass-through transparent PBM. And what we saw is that their pricing, one, was all over the board based upon, you know, what their contract with the pharmacies were. But the example I'll use is a 20 milligram atorvastatin, a very highly prescribed drug we always see it as a very high volume you know drug within any population that we review it's like why would you pay on a pass-through meaning that the pbm charged you the plan sponsor what they paid the pharmacy why would you pay three dollars per unit for a drug that in a competitive environment you can acquire for let's say five to eight cents per pill and also has a wholesale cost that's at or below a penny a pill Why would you pay that that pharmacy three bucks for that same transaction. So what we're able to do is because of the competitive process. Let's say we achieve a 20 milligram atorvastatin through the RFP process at eight cents per pill that it's eight cents per pill, whether they go to CVS, whether they go to Walgreens, whether they go to Rite Aid or Joe's Country Pharmacy, it doesn't matter. And it also is the same unit cost per pill at mail order, which is really an important issue. So. Regardless of the point of service, it's eight cents a pill. If the PBM, though, has a pharmacy contracted $3 per pill for that drug, they can only charge you the eight cents, a variance between eight and three bucks. That's their problem. So that's what I mean about we're shifting the network risk to the PBMs, and then how they basically are dealing with the pharmacies, that's between them and the pharmacies. That's not the plan sponsor's problems.
0: If we're going to get a, a good price from a PBM, I think it's very clear that what we need to do is eliminate variable contract and pricing terms relative to generics and get rid of that
1: AWP game.
0: The second thing that you had mentioned the last time that we talked is really contemplating specialty generics and making sure that they're classified as generics.
1: That's become a really interesting issue over the last probably four to five years. A lot of specialty drugs are coming off patent and they're beginning to move to generic. But what we see is that as they move from specialty brand to specialty generic, let's call it, the PBMs are not dropping the price to generic levels. We see that over and over again. So a a, a real easy example is a drug called Gleevec. And Gleevec is a very effective, it's a very good drug for treating a certain type of leukemia. The numbers I'm going to use are illustrative, they're not exact. But let's say, for example, that while Gleevec was a single-source specialty brand drug, that its AWP, average wholesale price minus X discount, was about $11,000 per month is what you ultimately ended up paying. And when it went generic, what we saw was the marketplace dropped it, for example, down to about $8,000 and everybody's going, wow, isn't that great? We just reduced our average monthly cost for the course of this treatment by $3,000. Everybody's happy, it's generic, and, and off you go. But we're watching the wholesale fluctuation as the generics became available and wholesale competition began for the generic version of Gleevec. And the price of that drug is now at or below, I think it's like $100 for the same course of treatment on a monthly basis. But yet we see in data today that these specialty drugs that are moved to generics are still being priced at exorbitant multiples above and really only a slight discount below where they were when they were single source brands.
0: When a specialty drug winds up generic, you really have to define the contracting terms there very cleanly. Otherwise, you could wind up the the PBM gives you an air quotes discount while at the same time they're making thousands of dollars per script.
1: Correct. A generic is a generic, in our world it's binary, it's either a zero or a one, it can't be a 0.5. In our world, generic is generic, we don't care if it's a specialty generic, and, and we've had some PBM clinicians try to argue that it still is, and we're, we just say absolutely not. If you don't want to define it as a generic, then you're eliminated from the competition. Well, that's one way to do it. Let's mm-hmm. move
0: into to number three technique for ensuring that you're going to get a good price from a PBM. And we talked about this a little bit before, but sometimes a PBM will say, give me your data and let me price it. That game, as we just discussed, there's a whole lot wrong with allowing a, a black box from...
1: It's like you're playing blackjack and you're giving the dealer your cards face up while he or she's still sitting there with their cards face down.
0: That's a great analogy, so mm-hmm. no more with that. The number four thing that you had mentioned earlier for ensuring that if we're gonna get a good price out of PBMs, the idea of not talking about rebates and start starting to talk about total revenue share that the PBM is willing to put out on the table.
1: Yeah, so I'll kind of reflect upon a story of a, a friend of mine that was at one point in time the CEO of McKesson PCS. This is the precursor to what is today Caremark. Back in the 90s, she was the CEO and the PBM industry was still evolving rapidly. She said it was so funny because as they started to really get out into the marketplace and work more closely with the manufacturers, that there were these pennies from heaven that just kept falling from the sky called rebates. But the key to it is that, you know, she called it pennies from heaven. In today's world, I would call it dump trucks backing up to the porch of the PBMs and dumping mass bags of money on their, on their front porch. The evolution of this since the mid to early 90s to where we are today is that a dollar of rebate is no longer a dollar of rebate. Theoretically, let's say it's 40 cents is the actual rebate amount. You know that 40 cents is still larger than the dollar was 25 years ago, but it's still only 40 cents. Let's say might be 30 in some environments, could be 20 in others. It just really depends on on the PBM rebate contracts. And let me
0: just dig into that for one second. Just emphasize what you just said. The PBM is saying that they're passing on 100% of the rebates to the employer, and in fact they are. Except that the PBM is extracting revenue from the pharma company that technically isn't classified as a rebate. So that's correct. therefore, it's not going to the plan sponsor. And you're saying that on average for every dollar that's extracted from the pharma company, only 40, 40 cents of it is typically classified as a rebate. And the other 60% call it an administrative fee, call it a data fee, call it something else. And then the PBM keeps that money.
1: Yeah, and to pierce that from the commercial market-facing side, to be able to pierce the relationship of the total revenue cost that's basically being brought in by the PBMs from various sources, including manufacturers, that is the black box. And now that these PBMs have created these rebate aggregators, most of which are domiciled offshore, it's even more difficult to really ascertain how much money is passing back and forth and how much money is being generated through these rebate aggregators that are primarily controlled by the big three PBMs. And how much money is really in play there is, is very difficult to ascertain.
0: Yeah, especially one of the points that sort of validates what you're, you're saying here is there was just an article the other day in Stat News and it was entitled, the biggest PBMs are handling more and more of the country's drug price negotiations. And mm-hmm. part of the thrust of that article is just these organizations are making a lot of money. And where do a lot of those dollars come from, especially if you look at any of the, like if you look at the cost of insulin and you look at the gross to net, it's increasing year over year, which basically is the PBM is taking more and more of a cut year over year. So Mm -hmm. just given the vast amounts of money there, if the PBM is taking even part of it as something that's not classified as a rebate and chucking it into their coffers, that adds up to vast sums of
1: wealth. Yeah, and so the term 100% of rebates is really irrelevant. The term should be how much is the PBM willing to guarantee on a per-brand retail, per-brand mail, and per-specialty script So getting a unit price again. Well, getting minimum guarantees. I mean, you could say 100% not to be below the minimum guarantee, but, you know, 100% of what? And that's the difficult part. When you say a minimum guarantee, what do you mean? Rebates are only paid on uh, brand and specialty drugs or basically brand because specialty are brand. But you might see a rebate guarantee for a... Brand drug at retail, rebate guarantee 300 bucks as the rebate. Or for specialty drugs, perhaps you'd get a rebate guarantee per specialty drug of $5,000. So that's the easy math. That's a defined term. You can measure it. It's a multiplying each of those categories times the guarantee. But then you get into the gamesmanship where the contract will say that the PBM is going to pay 100% of rebates not to you know, be below a minimum of, of the rebate guarantees. And then I kind of look at that, that anything over the minimum guarantees really is funny money. How much integrity is there in that calculation? Because do you ever really know what 100% of the rebates are? For example, we see contracts with carriers who have their own PBMs, right? What we'll see is language in the administrative service agreement that says that the PBM is going to receive X number and they're going to give us X minus 20 as and that's what we're going to define as 100% of the rebate. So it's like, okay, well, why don't we just, you know, go around the carrier, let the plan sponsor hold the contract with the PBM directly, which they should anyways. You should never, ever let a third party hold a PBM contract on your behalf if you're a plan sponsor. That's like a major violation of logic, let alone, I think, legal defensibility. They're basically telling you this, that, you know, the PBM is going to keep money, they're going to pay us some of it, and then we're going to pay you 100% of that. I'd really love to see the full accounting of that on a lot of the types of transactions. We're starting to get to a point where we're beginning to see those accountings, but the best way to do that is to carve the contract out and have it directly held by the plan sponsor.
0: Not only do we have one giant, not pretty opaque entity that we're dealing with. If you layer another one on, it becomes exponentially more not exactly. transparent Okay. The fifth thing we had talked about relative to ensuring that we're getting a fair shake from a PBM contract is, you sort of alluded to this, but it doesn't matter if the pa- if the pass-through is, is transparent by definition. And there's a number of these, they call them fiduciary PBMs or transparent PBMs. But again, that term is pretty irrelevant because it's subject to somebody's definition of what is considered a rebate?
1: What we look at we don't care what a PBM calls themselves, pass-through, fiduciary, transparent. We don't care if they call themselves a zebra. It doesn't matter. What matters is when you do a line-item assessment of the results of their methodologies, and is it producing an optimal result in comparison to competitively achieved unit cost pricing for generics, for brand, and for specialty?
0: Now, all of this hinges on getting the data file, right? And that is something that many plan sponsors struggle with. They cannot get their hands on the line item utilization of their employees. They just cannot get that data file. What's your experience
1: around that and what advice do you have? We've had difficulties getting data, but we've never not gotten a plan sponsor's data If you're talking about purely an ERISA plan sponsor or a public entity that's self-insured, that data is their property. And if a third-party service provider of any type, whether it be a health insurance carrier, a PBM, or any other service provider, if they are withholding data that is the property of the ERISA plan sponsor or the public entity, they are withholding the property of that entity, and that is basically just, that's not allowed. But the biggest problem is plan sponsors need to grow a backbone and to basically be willing to say to their carrier, their TPA, their PBM, if you do not provide this to us, which this is our property, one, we will take action against you to get our property from you. But number two, you're fired or you're not going to be allowed to participate in this RFP contest. And under the Consolidated Appropriations Act that went into place on December 27th of last year, the fiduciary is empowered by these new regs and the methodologies that basically clarify that data is their property. Get
0: a lawyer and or fire them. Because yeah. the data is yours and especially with the CAA, which, which by the way, Kristen Deacon was on the podcast mm-hmm. several months ago and she talked at length about the Consolidated Appropriations Act. So if anyone is interested, they should go back and listen to that for more information there.
1: Yeah, absolutely.
0: Is there anything, Scott, that I neglected to ask you that you think is important here to assessing PBM contracts and what are the absolutely essential ingredients of any plan sponsors playbook here?
1: Yeah, I think you've hit on the key ones. Your consultant you need to really understand their process because if they don't have the background, the skill sets, the knowledge, and the proven track record, and that their process is such that it protects you, the plan sponsor, then you know that's number one. The process is the key to achieving optimal pricing, and you do that by creating competition. Number two, understanding formulary exclusions and how that's gonna eventually impact your rebates that's huge. That's a very big issue. And then the you know the key thing is looking at contract terms that are variable and getting those out and creating a PBM contract that is more equal. Most of these PBM contracts, they could be hundreds of pages long. And a lot of it's written in a manner that it's kind of circular so that ultimately it, it defends the PBM in all cases. And so you have to really work through those issues and clean it up.
0: You exclusions and how they impact you. Mm-hmm. It to What end are you mentioning
1: exclusions it's that net to gross aspect so you mentioned earlier insulin why do you have a brand insulin that has a great rebate that then forces you the plan sponsor to exclude a generic that's pennies on the dollar oh i get it that's the type of exclusion i'm referencing they're excluding other drugs to the preference that they have to generate rebates I understand now. Yeah, I apologize.
0: Whole, yeah. Absolutely no worries at all. So it's not only look at the great deal that you can get on one drug, but make sure that the the generic version of that drug doesn't inadvertently get excluded and you wind up getting a great deal on a twelve thousand dollar drug that really should cost
1: forty. <laughs> yeah. And also keep in mind that rebates iner to the benefit of the plan sponsor, they don't necessarily benefit the consumer. So when you look to that gross to net transaction, you really have to start thinking about your plan design. And this is something that, you know, this is, I'm going to stray off here a minute. This is an opinion. Why the Department of Labor is not looking at these gross to net arrangements of rebates and how it's impairing the clinical and fiscal health of a consumer is beyond me.
0: Yeah, I mean, they're I mean, they're showing over and over and over again that financial toxicity is clinical toxicity. So I, well, I totally yeah. hear you. But at the same time, you know, plan sponsors aren't innocent in this. Like it's been said by many, plan sponsors are addicted to rebates because they're using them to lower overarching premiums. So, Correct. you know, like it's kind of a tangled web here. Yeah. Yep. Do you want to just talk a little bit about USI and the work that you do there?
1: Sure. Yeah, we are. I'm one of three principal consultants of a national healthcare consulting practice that sits inside of USI. We invite all PBMs to the table to compete for the privilege of serving clients that we represent.
0: And where can people go to learn more about USI services if they are interested in learning more?
1: usi.com I believe, is the global web address. But to get to our consulting practice, it would be best to come through me. My email is scott.haas at usi.com.
0: Scott Haas, thank you so much for being on Relentless Health Value today.
1: Oh, thank you for allowing me to ramble through this.
0: (laughs) So let's talk about going over to our website and typing your email address in the box to get the weekly email about the show that has come out. Sometimes people don't do that because they have subscribed on iTunes or Spotify and or were friends on LinkedIn. What you get in that email is a full and unredacted, unedited version of the whole introduction of the show transcribed. There's also show notes with timestamps just apprising you of the options that are available. Thanks so much for listening.